1: Welcome to the Small Business Administration Award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of school for startups radio it's monday the 21st i hope you're having a great day because we have a great show for you we've been talking about watches recently and we have a watch guest on the show today rt custer takes 100 year old watches and turns them into wrist watches pocket watches into wrist watches Turned out to be an amazing business. You will meet him in just a second. And after that, Danny Carroll is with us talking about beating cancer and his incredible experiences being diagnosed and overcoming several different forms of cancer. So it's fantastic stuff. Really excited to share it all with you. And we're very busy cram pack. So we're going to go ahead and get started right now. Listen for RT. He also changed the law. We're going to get started right now. Very excited to introduce my first guest today. Please welcome RT Custer. He believes in the American dream, grew up on a Christmas tree farm. I don't think there's anything more Americana than that. He has since then, though, gone off and had an amazing career in an industry that I don't think that uh, his Parents would have expected. He is now America's number one watch maker. He has a company called Vortec watch company that he and his partner have been running and it's had some amazing successes. One of the coolest is that they defeated the world's largest watch company in federal court and won a huge case. He's won a lot of other things too, including the funder, uh, the 40 under 40 from Penn state in their college of engineering. He was the winner of a quarter million dollar color, Colorado advanced manufacturing grant. He was the centerfold of entrepreneur magazine, 30 under 30 for Northern Colorado, uh, tech stars pitch competition winner. And this may be the coolest of all things. He was one of the college works painting companies RT, is that the famous summer gig where you go as a college student and sell painting during the summer and compete with all it the sh- other kids? Welcome to the show. It
2: sure is, Jim. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Happy Monday. Glad to be here.
0: Oh, uh, up there with Cutco Knives, I think sure is. college painting is one of the best jobs that a college kid can have. It's the best training in the world. Your turn.
2: I agree. I mean, you know, I have, I have two little boys, a four year old and a six year old, and I don't know that college will look the same if at all when, when they are are my age, you know, I I don't know that that's really going to be a thing. And so um, I think doing stuff like that, you know, I I, I always talk to my partner and and my friends who have kids about how do I create that experience for them of, you know, I grew up on a farm. I went door to door selling paint jobs when I never painted a house in my life. Like, I got this amazing life experience, um, and on top of that, a, a great college education too. So um, it's, it, it's tough to, to compete with that, and I think that's why I was just kind of destined to be an entrepreneur. I, I wouldn't have it any other way, and I don't think I could work for anyone else.
0: <laughs> and did you just learn so much about yourself and selling through that experience? Why did you do oh. it? It's a hard summer, isn't
2: it? For sure. Yeah. Well, and it's not even just a summer. I mean, it starts so I, I went to Penn State, but I lived I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania. That's where my tree farm was. So it's about two and a half hours from State College where Penn State is. And so starting in April, I would drive that two and a half hours one way back home for the weekends pretty much every weekend. And then um and then ran the painting business in my hometown for the summer. And that's one thing they don't talk too much about is you're running the business in your hometown. And if your hometown isn't where the college is, you gotta get there. And so pretty much every weekend I went door to door with my friends and um, and people I hired to just, you know, trying to say, hey, do you want your house painted this summer? And obviously it's, it's in some ways more difficult to say, I've never painted a house before in my entire life, but I'd like to paint your house this summer. Is that okay? <laughs> and so you, yes, you learn a lot through that experience. Um, you make money, not enough to pay for it. Um, but that's not what it's for. I mean, I, I, that was an invaluable experience and that's how I met my business partner, Tyler Wolf, who I now run the Vortec watch company with. And, you know, that was, gosh, that was 12 years ago at this point. So it's all, all part of the dream.
0: And tell us how you decided to start a watch company.
2: Yeah. So Tyler and I met through college works painting and, um, it was, it was a super fun experience, but also, you know, like I said, like you said, very difficult one. And so we bonded through the difficulty of running that business together. Um, one summer and we started playing golf after school when we were back at at college. And one day on the golf course, we had a few crazy ideas in the realm of wristwatches. He always wears a watch when he plays golf and I always, take mine off because I feel like it kind of gets in the way. And so that kind of started a conversation about watches and, you know, the size of them and uh, how comfortable they are and how they're made and where they're made. And when we started talking about where they're made, we realized most watches, almost zero watches are manufactured in the United States. And by the end of the golf round, we had decided, okay, if we start a watch company, we're going to make it in America. That's, this was 2011 when we had the idea. And we did a ton of research over a couple of years, our last couple of years of school and when we graduated from school, we we started Vortec Watch Company, uh, launched on Kickstarter. And basically, through the research of how do you make a watch in America, we stumbled on the history of what we call the Great American Watch Companies. And most people don't know this, but 100 years ago, there were 10 different companies that manufactured over 100 million pocket watches in the USA. Companies like Elgin, Waltham, Ball, Hamilton. These We call them the great American watch companies, but they manufactured pocket watches back then. And today, those pocket watches are scrapped for gold and silver. Nobody has any use for pocket watches, so they scrap the case, the outside of it. And we had the idea to upcycle the inside of those old pocket watches, turn them into wristwatches. And by doing that, we made one of the only truly American-made wristwatches, put it on Kickstarter in November of 2014, and the rest is history, Jim. We sold every watch we ever made. You know, sometimes you get lucky and you have a good idea like that. and It was a really good idea, and we just were having a blast. Uh,
0: I, I got lost. Do you take the, an existing watch and make it into the new watch?
2: Or? Yeah, so our product is called the American Artisan Series, and we take the inside of a 100-year-old right. pocket watch and we restore it and we manufacture the outside of the wristwatch and we turn that pocket watch into a wristwatch.
0: Interesting. Wow. I had not known that I have a hundred year old pocket watch from my grandfather. And, cool. Uh, you'll
2: have to, you have to send it to me. I mean, that's, it's crazy. Everybody, I would say 75% of the people I meet have a family heirloom pocket watch and nobody knows what to do with it. It's sitting in a drawer at best. It's a, you know, it's in a little glass dome and you, you, you know, exactly. talk about it on on Christmas oh, day yeah. with your family, maybe. Yep. yep. Um, but, um, we have a service called convert your watch where people send us family heirloom pocket watches from all around the world and we turn them into wristwatches as a service. And gosh, if that's not the coolest way to preserve an heirloom, you know, obviously I'm biased, but, um, it's, it's pretty awesome working with those customers and, uh, helping them, Make that pocket watch wearable again, put it on your wrist every day.
0: Wow, what a fascinating idea. I had not thought of that. I used to have a company where we took hundred year old them carpets, also known as Persian mm-hmm. rugs, Oriental yeah. rugs, and we would cut them up as sacrilegious as that was and make the <laughs> the fabric as the fabric for a new armchair, like a Queen Anne armchair. Yeah. And uh that's awesome. Uh they were yeah they were beautiful absolutely beautiful products and there's something special about taking old and returning value to it and uh making it beautiful again
1: Yeah my only thought RT, it... though is I'd hate to,
0: to lose the exterior of the watch it's got a little train carved on it and you know Yeah I, uh what do you do with the exteriors? Do you just melt them down? No,
2: said- we actually, no, we preserve them and we send it back to you in the box. We do what's called a non-destructive conversion. So let's say, you know, your kids, your grandkids, a hundred years from now, somebody wants to take that wristwatch that we made for you and turn it back into its original form as a pocket watch. They totally can't. We, we don't destroy any of that process and um, we keep it all original. Our mission is to preserve American history. So we try to do it the right way.
0: All right. And do you make watches from scratch as well, though?
2: We are. We're we're launching a new brand. We call it a sister company, and it's called Mechanical Products Company. And we're launching that in September. Um, And and that's a new American-made watch totally from scratch. It'll be the most um, by percentage American-made wristwatch on the market in scaled production since these old pocket watch companies went out of business in the 1960s. And it's all built here in Fort Collins, Colorado.
0: I'm on the website. The uh Vortec website. Are all of the watches there? Pocket watches, old pocket watches that have been converted?
2: Yep, yeah. If you're on the store page, um it's VorticWatches.com slash watches, you'll see all of the, the watches that we take, their old pocket watches and turn them into wrist watches, and you'll see if you uh, mouse over them or if you click on into one, you can see that the backs are all open. They all have glass so you can see the mechanism of the pocket watch too. And that's also all original. We keep that. We restore the original mechanism, um, make it work again, make it tell time again, and and then display it through a piece of glass on the back. A lot of people, um, you know, it's kind of like a museum on the wrist, right? There's like so many stories inside of that watch now.
0: And plus these things are just gorgeous. I mean, my God. These and, are,
2: these and they're cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always, I always skip over that, but you know, you kind of have to make that judgment for yourself. I mean, it's, I, I'm a history nerd. You know, I, I love the, the history behind these pocket watch companies. I love thinking about how the heck did they make something that intricate a hundred years ago with no computers, with no code, with no machines that we have today. It just blows my mind. Um, thinking about the, the manufacturing side of that and the historical side of that. And and that's really, you know, we set out with a simple mission and it was to manufacture a wristwatch in America. And it's taken us 10 years to figure out how to do it modern, like, and have a modern mechanism. Um, and that's the thing that's coming out in September. But um, we, we kind of had to use a little crutch here and, and use these 100-year-old antiques. But like you said, with the rugs, it's it's upcycling, you know? like. There's no one's going to have any use for an old pocket watch. And so we're giving these things a second life, you know, for for a new generation. Yes.
0: How much does it cost to convert one?
2: Um, So our product range price range now for our, we call it the American artisan series of the pocket watches turned into wristwatches. They started about 2000 and then go up to about 10,000. Our service is roughly three or 4,000, depending on what you have. And that includes full restoration of your original pocket watch, making it work again. And like I said, sending you the case back um, in a box to preserve it.
0: And how did you learn the manufacturing part of this? Uh, And where does that happen?
2: Yeah, so um, our factory here is in Fort Collins, Colorado. um, And we do tours all the time. Um, At the top of our website, you can schedule a tour if you ever... We're only about an hour north of Denver. So if you're ever in Colorado, come check us out. Um, and we show you how we do everything. So we take a chunk of metal, usually steel, bronze, or titanium, and we use our CNC machines to cut that chunk of metal down in to make the case, the crown, you know, where you wind it, um, all the, the buckle, the other metal components. We make all the metal components on the outside of the watch here in Fort Collins, Colorado. We have to source the glass, it's sapphire glass on the front and back. Um, but we found an American supplier for that now, and we source the leather. The, they're all on leather straps. Most of our leather is made in either Florida or Manhattan in the fashion district. Um, so, this is one of the only, like I said, truly American made wristwatches on the market. And it took us 10 years to figure it out, but um, now we love, we have 8,000 square feet here, so we love doing tours, showing you how it's made, showing you how we restore the, the mechanisms showing how we design and build the watches. We try to do as much as we can in this building in Colorado.
0: Wow. And how'd you get started? How did you do the first watch?
2: (laughs) Great question. So I studied industrial engineering at Penn State and Tyler was math major. Um, And we we actually designed the original case um, on a metal 3D printer which was what I was working on with one of my professors, we were 3D printing titanium before anyone knew it was a thing. Most people still don't even know you can do that, but um, it starts with powdered titanium. And that's, I was working on a project. It was, I think it was for Lockheed Martin, but it was a fighter jet part. Um, And they were using 3D printed metal for that. And I was like, man, you know, we only, we need a prototype of this product. We need to figure out how to take this pocket watch and make a case for it. And so we had these these rough designs. And you know, we could have 3D printed out of plastic and then like tried to figure out how to make it after that or take it to a manufacturing company to make it. But with this technology, we could go straight to metal. And so our first, I want to say two or three hundred watches that we made were 3D printed metal. Um, and they're really cool. The customers that have those are stoked. Like they I always upg- like I, I offer to upgrade if you have one of our original products. And 100% of people tell me, absolutely not. That's the coolest thing they have. (laughs) Even if the technology has come a long way, they have one of the first 3D printed ones. And um, that's how we did it is is literally made them all one at a time, um, kind of handcrafted them. And then over time, we learned that uh, CNC manufacturing, it's uh, like Charlie, Nancy, Charlie, um, those big machines that cut metal um, in a more traditional manufacturing way we, we learned that that was more efficient. And so once we could, um, really, we raised some money. Um, we bought a few of those machines and now we have six of those machines here in this building. Um, Tyler taught himself how to use those machines on YouTube. Um, and now we, like I said, take a chunk of metal and turn it into a watch right here in Colorado.
0: And how are you going about marketing?
2: So our primary source of marketing is email marketing I've grown our email list from a few thousand people basically just our customers to um, we're, we're approaching 50,000 on our list now. Um, but over 40% of our, our sales is from email marketing. And I've sent an email once a week for now going over three years. And I just tell our customers what we're up to, what we'll work on next a bunch of behind the scenes kind of stuff. Um, and then we make one new one of a kind watch every single day. And so I call it the weekly roundup. So you get an email once a week that has pictures of watches in it. And it's all the watches we made this week. And we have a very low unsubscribe rate because if you like watches, it's kind of cool to get an email like that every week with new one of a kind watches that you could buy, or you could at least just look at um, plus some storytelling and some how it's made kind of stuff. And that's, that's how we do it primarily. And then um, to grow the email list, I do podcasts like this. I do digital marketing. Um, I feel like I'm, At this point an evangelist for the company. I just try to tell everyone I ever meet, hey, go check out Vortic Watches in Fort Collins, Colorado. We're doing some pretty cool stuff.
0: Well, it's obviously working.
2: (laughs) Knock on wood, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You've not done anything in the watch magazines or the cigar magazines or anything like that?
2: We do. Um, I, I probably every other year I put an ad in Rob Report, um, and and then there are some wristwatch industry magazines. But um, like you mentioned in the intro, we got sued by the Swatch Group in 2015 before we actually even shipped our first watch. And during that six-year-long federal lawsuit, we got blackballed by the entire watch industry and a lot of people in the watch industry, especially wouldn't write about us because um, unfortunately the swatch group is their major advertiser. Um, and they, they blacklisted us.
0: What did they so
2: for? So um, one of the great American watch companies was called Hamilton. Hamilton watch company was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, and they were like the Rolex of America. They made some of the best pocket watches in the world. Um, they made all the pocket watches or most of them for world war II Um, just a fantastic company. They went out of business in 1969 and the trademark to Hamilton Watch Company was bought by the Swatch Group in the 70s. We take old pocket watches, turn them into wrist watches. Some of them still say Hamilton on the face of the watch, the dial of the watch. So we make a wrist watch that says Hamilton on the front. And they sued us over trademark infringement and counterfeiting because they thought we were putting Hamilton on the watch and they wouldn't listen to me when i said it's just an original antique and we're upcycling it and the the lawsuit is called hamilton v vortec and without going deeper we we protected the right to upcycle um like for instance if those those persian rugs you were working on before had a i don't know a big brand on them and you turned them into a chair and it still had the brand on them now that would be okay to do because of hamilton v vortec and I do podcasts like this all the time with, with people in the legal field because we're actually in several law textbooks now, um, which is, I think one of the things I'm most proud of is, you know, this David and Goliath story didn't just help us. It's going to help a lot of people that are doing that upcycling or that refurbishing or recycling type stuff.
0: And did it cost you a ton of money?
2: (laughs) Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend ourselves yes and we'll never get a cent of that back but um you're you're innocent until proven guilty and unfortunately it costs a lot of money to to prove your innocence but um it was all worth it for sure i would say the thing that was more costly was the time um and the distraction you know lost revenue is how i typically look at it as Myself as the CEO, as, as we're fighting this for six years, I was very distracted by this lawsuit and I couldn't just run the watch company. I wanted to run with my friend Tyler. So that was really the most costly thing, but you know, again, knock on wood, we won. It's over. Now we can just make watches and we don't have a big gorilla on our back um, anymore. So we're having a lot of fun now.
0: <laughs> well, that makes me hate swatch all the more. So. <laughs> Bad people. I was not sued because I gave up before it got to that, but I got a cease and desist for using the word entrepreneur. Uh, Our very first product was called the entrepreneur school and entrepreneur magazine owns the trademark to entrepreneur, the word and that Boggle. It's actually, they made a movie about how they illegally acquired that, uh, trademark. Fascinating! but once you have it, even if it's illegally acquired, you're yep. allowed to, to use it. And so they've been defending that trademark for 30 years, suing entrepreneurs left and right. And I, I've yelled at the editor of entrepreneur magazine about this. And he said, you're right. You're right. You're a jerk, you know. But, yep. you know, I work for the company too. And, uh, the company, that's their policy. And I just want everyone yep. to know don't buy Entrepreneur Magazine because they really <laughs> don't support entrepreneurs.
2: And don't buy yeah, Swatch
0: because they don't support watches. <laughs>
2: so. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. One, one thing I learned, um, early on is, um, anyone can sue anyone over anything at any time and that's the world we live in and uh, most people don't talk about it and so that's why um, it is a little ironic that Entrepreneur Magazine was the only magazine that actually told that story and like you said in the intro I got centerfold um, you know six pages in Entrepreneur in 2021 and the the journalist told the entire story her name is Liz Brody and she changed my life she validated me for the first time so um, I I don't, I'm not disagreeing with, with your point on, on entrepreneur and the trademark and all that stuff, but it is trademark law is fascinating. And unfortunately I know a lot about it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and really the biggest thing is a trademark and a patent is only worth what money you have and you use to defend it. So, uh, entrepreneur and swatch group and all the, like, I don't, I don't dislike them for doing that thing. That that's it's it's not a company policy to to step on people and 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 um, disrupt innovation or whatever. It's literally the their legal counsel is doing their job and protecting the trademark that they own. Um, and as frustrating as it is, that's how the United States Patent and Trade Office works. You you once you have a trademark, it's not enough to just have it. You have to defend it. Otherwise, yes, yeah. people well, will walk all over you. Right. So, well, it's a shame.
0: <laughs> I'm involved in another lawsuit with a Fortune 500 company right now, and they're just bad. You know, they're the lawyers just are bad. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, there's no evidence on their side, but yet we're still suing each other. There's and there's no evidence on their side, but they still yep. proceed forward you know, despite having zero evidence, they're not smart enough. To yeah, say, well, yeah. Let's settle
2: this one. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And we, we, I mean, through our six year battle, we, we talked about settlement. We went to settlement conferences several times. Um, Swatch Group actually no showed me in New York at a settlement conference and got a big slap on the wrist from the federal judge for wasting the government's time and resources for no showing a meeting with me in Manhattan, which was just fascinating in itself. But the, Biggest thing I I learned there also is, is that um, that judge, when when we got no-showed, I was just sitting there with the judge for, I mean, an hour as they called Switzerland to figure out where the heck these guys were. And the judge pulled me aside and she said, hey, just so you know, this is an interesting case. And what I mean by that is, no one has had a ruling like this ever. Like there's similar cases, but not in the watch industry, not in the jewelry industry this is a really interesting case and we need to, we need to take this all the way through so that we have a gavel swing and we have 40 pages of law that's written about this. And you do not want to be the defendant in an interesting case because uh. it's going to be really expensive. And and she was right. That was halfway through. There was still another three years after that until we got all the way through. But what happened is what she said. And it was, the first judge when we won officially in federal court and that gavel came down, um, there was over 40 pages of law written about what you can and can't do with an old pocket watch, what you can and can't do with an old brand. If, if a brand is on something and then you upcycle it and turn it into something else, what you can and can't do about that. And that's why it's in legal textbooks now because it was interesting. And so, um, the interesting part of that is is mystery, right? And so if there's, even if there's no evidence, if there's mystery, if there's a few unknowns, then you kind of have to keep talking about it and you either have to settle, you either have to give up, like you said, or you have to take it all the way through and go to court and let a judge decide. And unfortunately, every single one of those options is <laughs> really expensive, <laughs> um, whether financially or just time consuming, it's expensive. And so the the thing that, and I really appreciate you letting me talk this out, Jim, because I think that the worst thing is that especially in David and Goliath stories like this, you never get to hear from the David, you know, cause the Goliath just puts them out of business or they, they give up and they don't take it all the way through. And I feel like that's, you know, I'm only 32. Like I got a lot of life left to live. I got a lot of entrepreneurship that I can get, get out here in my life. And I feel like this is one of my stories to say like, Hey, if you're, if you're getting sued, especially by a big company, you got to talk about it. you got to tell your friends. you got to ask for help. you got to ask for advice. So that's the one mistake I didn't do, or the one mistake I made, is I didn't ask for help soon enough. But as soon as I started asking for help, people came out of the woodwork, and they helped me, and it was amazing. But years went by of me just trying to figure this out on my own.
0: Oh, very good advice. RT, I heard you were a gaming
2: man. <laughs> In what way?
0: Are you willing to play our game, The Quick Ten?
2: absolutely I, I love games i play games all the time with my kids um and i think this these questions are, are super fun so hit all me.
0: right let's play oh wait i forgot to ask are you willing to accept our standard wager
2: i i don't you know what i don't know what it is but i'm gonna say yes either there you way you go number one
0: man. your favorite creativity hack
2: Favorite creativity hack is to change your location, go somewhere nice like the beach and change your perspective.
0: Number two, favorite bootstrapping trick.
2: Um, Credit stacking. If you don't know what that is, 0% credit cards for the win. Check it out.
0: Number three, name your top passions.
2: I'm um, very passionate about just entrepreneurship in general. I'm passionate about fatherhood, being a really good dad, showing my kids that they can do anything. Um, I'm passionate about just living a, a balanced and exciting life, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and I love golf. It's where I've had all my best ideas like this one. um I'm starting to watch company. It all came from the golf course.
0: Number four, the first three steps in starting a business are...
2: Gosh, number one is just fully fleshing out the idea and making sure that it's a big enough idea to go all in on. Number two is figuring out the name of the company and the brand around it. And number three is writing down the story and tying that idea and the brand together to have a a constant story and a clarified message.
0: Number five, the best way to get your first real customer is...
2: In-person selling to someone you know, like, or trust who will give you real feedback. And when they swipe their credit card, man, is that validating?
0: Number six, your dreamiest technology is? You know, I
2: love AI when it's used in a visual sense. Like I've I've been working with my kids to say, hey, what do you want this this AI to create? And they tell me anything and I type it in and we get a picture in 30 seconds. It's so cool.
0: Number seven, best entrepreneurial advice.
2: Ask for help sooner, faster, right away. As soon as you need it, ask for help.
0: Number eight, worst entrepreneurial mistake.
2: Not knowing your numbers. You got to know your numbers inside and out. If you don't know what I mean when I say a P&L and a balance sheet, research it, figure it out right now. Number nine, favorite entrepreneur and why? Uh, Elon Musk I don't know how he does it all he must be an alien but I love him number 10 favorite
0: superhero
2: Um, favorite superhero is Batman because gosh he just has the coolest gadgets and coolest backstory and um, I mean he's just living the dream so cool
0: all right. Wow. What a fantastic story, R.T. Thank you so much for being with us today. While we calculate your score, how do we find out more about you, follow you online, and most importantly, buy a watch? Uh,
2: Vorticwatches.com. That's V and in Victor, O-R-T-I-C, watches, plural, dot com. And um, I also have my personal website, rtcuster.com, like Robert Thomas Custer, C-U-S-T-E-R. Um, but you can find us, both uh, the company and myself on Instagram. That's my platform of choice. Vortec Watches on Instagram and RT Custer on Instagram. Send me a DM and let me know you heard me here, and let's talk about running and starting businesses.
0: All right, fantastic, great, great stuff, RT. I I'm really impressed, and uh, we'll have to look at my grandfather's watch and see what I should do with it. I'm basically just burning time here until we calculate your, Oh, I've been giving your score. Oh, Oh, RT. I'm so bummed. You got a 94, which is an excellent score, but you have to have a 95 to win. Uh, Elon Shrilovich was one of our judges and he dinged you, man. He used to be an actor on, uh, The walking dead. And he was one of our judges. <clears throat> and He dinged you. I'm so sorry.
2: You got an excellent score,
0: but, uh, it's not a winning score so you owe us a tesla a tesla okay uh, cool well, I think major, you're right. so i'll look forward to my tesla totally. showing up soon
2: yeah as long as i can make payments on it we're good i'll, I'll right. figure it out with you. I'll, I'll trade you a tesla and we'll uh make you that watch too we'll figure it out all
0: right rt great stuff really appreciate you being with us
2: thank you sir appreciate your time
0: and we'll be right back we're going to talk about curing cancer next we'll be right back Welcome back again. Thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to introduce my next guest. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Please welcome Danny Carroll to the show. He is author of a new book called Terminal Cancer is a Misdiagnosis. Discover a palliative care alternative medicine you can survive. It has over 200 Five star reviews on that Amazon place. Amazingly impressive. Unfortunately, Danny is a cancer victim himself, a survivor now. He had excessive cancer in several different places, but was able to beat it. And of course, that will be a huge part of the story that he tells us. He has also had a very interesting work and business career, he has founded a publishing company. And attended London School of Economics. You don't get any more impressive than that. He, of course, did not hang out with Mick Jagger, another LSE graduate. Welcome,
1: Danny. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Jim, and that's a pleasure to be here.
0: It is our pleasure. So tell us your cancer story. Go back to the beginning.
1: Um, well I've I've had uh I've I've had cancer of the lung, including a fat lung. Um I've had uh, testicular cancer, jaw cancer, skin cancer and uh I didn't get it tested, but also bone. Cancer. I have uh, I've been studying alternative protocols for um for cancer for the last eighteen years. Uh, and uh and the experiencing cancer myself was one of the key parts of my learning journey, Jim. So um, it's been uh, it's been an absolutely fascinating route. All
0: right, talk to us about India and the role it has played in your recovery.
1: So, I, I was sent to India uh, with a UK consulting company in mid 1990s. Um, uh, I realize now with a benefit of hindsight, I mean, uh, India has a huge, very diverse ecosystem of uh, of different healing solutions, both conventional and alternative. Um, and it's a very open environment in order to, to let people study and test and practice with, with different modalities. Uh, I had a friend uh, who was diagnosed with cancer in 2005, um, uh, in Bombay, and uh, she couldn't afford cancer treatment. Uh, I ran a marathon to raise the money for her treatment. And uh, um, when she went in the hospital, she was fit and fine, or she looked it at least. They said she had cancer. Um, she was delighted that I raised a lot of money for her treatment. Um, but she uh, she used to message me from hospital saying she started uh, she started chemotherapy treatments, and she sent me from hospital saying. Danny, I don't know what these doctors are doing, but uh, it feels like they're putting poison in my veins. Um, and sadly, she died after after three rounds of chemo. Um, I swore that I would search the ends of the earth to find a better solution to, to cancer, and I've essentially done. I've, I've essentially spent the last eighteen years doing that. Um, what I what I what I what I realized, Jim, is that uh, I mean in business. I mean, I, I've been I've been in venture capital for the last ten years, uh, asset management, uh, strategic management consulting for my entire career. Um, in business, we have a we have a standard of problem solving um, that states that you can never solve a problem by addressing the symptom. You can only ever solve a problem. Um, by addressing the cause of the problem. Um, and when I started studying many modalities um, of healing, both conventional and alternative, what I discovered is that the same standard of problem-solving is not applied to our health. Uh, and in fact, all healing modalities that we use today, both conventional and alternative, are all forms of symptomatic treatment. And, um, I had, a, I, had a, I had a cathartic healing experience in 2012, and uh, I, I, I went for a, a situation where for six months my entire body was riddled with golf ball-sized knots. And um, uh, uh, I was in physio, and the physio was ironing out these, these knots in my muscles, which was excruciatingly painful and left my muscles bruised. And, and when I returned to the physio after two days, uh, the knots would just reappear. Um, so that carried on for about a six month period uh, I was facing a unique challenge at that point in my life where I was dating uh, I separated from my ex-wife and I was dating an American diplomat and uh, she uh, she was leaving Bombay um, and her next posting was in Santiago de Chile so nobody in their right mind has a relationship between South Asia and South America so we would agreed to, to terminate our relationship when she left And uh, the problem we found is that we'd become soulmates uh, and we were unable to terminate the relationship. So the weekend before she was leaving, um, uh, we sat down on a Friday evening and and agreed that we would not terminate the relationship. We would do this ridiculous long-distance relationship and see if it just fizzled out naturally. And when I woke up on a Saturday morning, all of these knots that had riddled my my body, my calves, my thighs, my arms, my back, uh, magically disappeared overnight um, which was quite a quite a cathartic experience. So um, I had a suspicion that uh, that there could be a similar. Uh, if, if I, what I learned from that essentially was that uh, if my mind has the has the ability to both cripple me and gift me back my uh, my health at the snap of my fingers, just by resolving a life problem, that there could be a similar mechanism that related to cancer. Um, and I was planning to do a PhD. Um, to study the, the mind-body connection, and I was looking for a university that could host it. Uh, I was looking for a university that had both a medical and a psychology specialization, and I was planning to build a bridge between them. And in the process of looking for this university, I found a, I found a German medical doctor who was reported to have a, a 92% success rate healing um, terminal cancer patients Using a form of mind-body medicine, um, that uh, that German doctor's name was Dr. Richard Gehr Hummer, um, and he developed uh, a new body of medical knowledge called, uh, G- at the time, it was called Germanic New Medicine, um, and it's since been changed to Germanic Healing Knowledge. Um, this this doctor had a had a, an extraordinary story. Uh, in 1970, So he was a traditional medical doctor and um, basically uh, specialized in cancer research. In 1978, his 19-year-old son was shot and murdered. And two months afterwards, um, he, got, uh, he got cancer on his testicle um, and metastasized the stomach. Uh, now, he was given a 1% chance to survive. Uh, he survived because he had surgery, but he didn't have chemotherapy or radiation. That he couldn't help thinking that uh, that there might be a, uh, a causal link between his son's murder and him getting cancer on a reproductive organ. Um, so at the time he was the head of cancer research for a gynaecological oncology unit in uh, in a university in Germany, um, and he was working with two hundred late stage female cancer patients. And when he started, he started to interview them to see whether they'd gone through a similar. Traumatic life crisis before they got cancer, and out of 200, 200 had. Um, and wind forward 39 years of cancer research with over 50,000 cancer patients. And what he basically concluded, Jim, was that uh, cancer essentially, uh, whilst uh, we believe that it's this, this a disease that sort of roams around your body and kills you like a, an invading army from, from within. Um, what he basically concluded is that, uh, is that cancer is essentially a survival biological program um, and, and it's there to help us and not to hurt us. Uh, and so in his case, his son was shot and murdered and he got cancer on his testicle. Apart from the tumor on his testicle, Jim, was that it was, uh, it was designed to increase his fertility levels um, and basically increase his ability to produce sperm and testosterone so that he had a better chance of getting his wife pregnant, so he could, so he could replace the child he just lost. Now, once he, once he understood that fundamental mechanism, um, he, unra- he essentially unraveled the biological code and, and discovered that every form of cancer is there uh, comes in a life crisis in order to help increase our capacity to solve a life problem. Um, now that, uh, that, that those medical discoveries have essentially been buried for the last 45 years, because he estimated that when they're allowed to surface, that 95 uh, percent of all symptomatic treatments, both conventional and alternative, will essentially be put out of business. <clears throat> so what Did I'm you doing have
0: yeah. a traumatic event that started your cancers.
1: Yes, I did. My uh, the the lung the lung and testicular cancer was triggered by my ex fiance terminating um, a child. Uh, she got pregnant when I was studying at the London School of Economics, um, and it essentially, when when I ended that relationship, she told me that uh, that she would terminated this child without consulting me, um, and that essentially tri- triggered the the lung cancer, which is caused. By a fear of death for either yourself or for another, and uh, a testicular cancer that uh, is caused by a loss conflict. So for me, it was the loss of the child without without being told about it. Um, and you can once you understand the connections between what Dr. Hummer found as the cause um, of of these cancers, and you can start connecting the dots and find out exactly what caused your cancers, and then how to fix them. Okay. Yeah. I've spent the last seven years helping terminally or cancer patients who uh, medical doctors have sent home to die um, to fully recover their health. It's been quite extraordinary, and I'm not even a doctor.
0: And how does that happen? Is that a mental exercise where you discover the cause of their trauma
1: Absolutely, yeah. The, the, what this doctor discovered is that the trauma that that triggers these cancers to start running is also essentially the the, the, the magic switch that, that switches those programs off so if you can if you can find out like in my case that uh, that it was caused by um, uh, this uh, um, uh, abortion that my, that my fiancé carried out, once you make the conscious connection to these programs, basically it can switch them off.
0: And how has the medical community responded to this idea?
1: Oh, they hate it, Jim. Um, uh, this, this doctor had, uh, he was put in prison for two and a half years um, he had 12 attempts on his life, and over a 30-year period, they tried to put him in a mental institution 75 times. When he was, uh, when he was prosecuted in, in Austria, um, uh, the prosecution subpoenaed 6,500 of his patients' medical files and called all of his patients up and discovered that, that over 6,000 of his terminal cancer patients were not only alive, but they were in full health. Um, and uh, in that particular trial, he was put in prison for 21 months for helping 92% of terminal cancer patients to fully recover their health. Well, what charge
0: was he actually convicted of?
1: He was charged for, uh, they, remo- they removed his medical license in 1986 because he refused to prescribe chemotherapy. Um so he was continuously prosecuted and convicted for practicing medicine without a license. Wow. Yeah. And these medical discoveries have been swept under the rug for the last 45 years. Um my my first book Terminal Cancer is a Misdiagnosis is an introduction to these medical discoveries but it's the first book in a 500 plus book series. Um, I'm planning to write one, one book on each disease. Um, I've written four of those so far um, on breast cancer, testicular cancer, IBS and ulcerative colitis and atopic dermatitis. Um, I'm planning from September to start writing one book a month and I will write one book a month until I've completed writing one book on every disease. And the books are written so that anybody with no knowledge of the subject can basically read i mean they're basically written forrest gump language right and um, they're written so that anybody can pick them up and understand it and understand what's causing their health problems and how to resolve it so what, what about, i'm trying to do is i'm trying to make them accessible to the masses
0: what about ibs what has what are your thoughts on the causes of ibs
1: so ibs ibs it's called ibs it's called ulcerative colitis it's called crohn's disease essentially it's all the same problem and it's caused by what's called an indigestible anger conflict so it's a it's a problem that you cannot solve in life um i experienced this problem um, because my ex-wife and my family used to fight and they used to hate each other my ex-wife hated my family and my family hated my ex-wife. Um, when um, when I when I divorced when I got divorced from my ex-wife, um, and I introduced my uh, new partner to my family that they loved, uh, that problem went into resolution. And at the time, I was early in I, early in my studies of this medical science. I spent seventy-two hours with crippling stomach cramps and loose motions. Until I sat down uh, with my then girlfriend and worked out what caused that problem. And I was laying on on the bed in my parents' house in London. Um, And uh, I was laying there with crippled with stomach cramps. And when I worked out what caused the problem, and I said, oh, I know we've solved a problem that my partner fights with my family. I I switched that that IBS off like a light switch. And it just went digly, 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 and it disappeared. And it's never come back since.
0: Who are you married to now, Danny?
1: The diplomat. The diplomat. Yes, my then girlfriend became my soulmate. Then became my wife. Yes. And you live in Mumbai. Uh, my permanent residence is in Mumbai. Um, my my wife, being a diplomat, travels around to different locations. She's currently living in Dublin, in Ireland. Um, so I split my time between Bombay and Dublin, basically.
0: Interesting. I yeah. used to teach in at IIT there. Ooh, nice! Lived in Hawaii, in Hawaii. Very short <laughs> periods of time while I was there.
1: Yeah, not the best place in Bombay to live, unfortunately. <laughs> well,
0: India is not an easy place to live.
1: India is not an easy place to live, um, but I, I've been there for like twenty-eight years now, Jim. So. Um, I, I, I love it. The place has got so much energy, you can almost put a plug into it, yeah? Wow. Well, and and in have... hindsight, Jim, if I, if I hadn't have lived in India, I no way I would have been able to carry out the type of medical research I have over the past nearly two decades, and I never could have traversed this journey. So everything happens for a reason, Jim.
0: What about families that have hereditary brain tumors? I've... I know several families that multiple members have had the same cancer. Is that, what is, what's going on
1: there? So, according to Dr. Hummer, Jim, there is no such thing as a brain tumor. The definition of cancer is abnormal cell multiplication. Uh, neurons in the brain do not multiply after birth. The only cells in the brain that multiply basically are called glial cells and it's reconnective tissue whose job is to repair the damage done to the brain by emotional trauma. So what happens is when, uh, when the reconnective tissue starts repairing the brain, um, and the brain, like the rest of the body, can only heal in a fluid environment, when doctors see reconnective tissue repairing the brain with fluid inside it, they think it's brain cancer. Well, it's not. It's just a, it's the brain carrying out a repair process from an emotional trauma. So it's essentially it's a misdiagnosis.
0: But that tumor ends up killing people, doesn't it? No.
1: The surgery and the radiation and the chemotherapy end up killing people, Jim. <laughs>
0: uh.
1: Yeah, the, 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 the reconnective tissue, I mean, it's going it, uh, to give you a, a cracking headache um, when you put pressure on your brain because of the fluid from where the area is healing, but, uh, but it's not going to kill you. Not in 99% of cases, unless it's a really extreme trauma, maybe from childhood or something that you've resolved, in which case the the healing process can kill you.
0: Absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I can't tell you, Jim. I say I, I've, I've spent the... Um, I say I, 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 for business, I, the last 10 years, I've been working in venture capital. Okay. I've been carrying out this cancer research as a, uh, essentially as a hobby for the last nearly 20 years. Um, and, I, and I've had um, thousand, hundreds or maybe thousands of cancer patients come to me for help, um, typically when either they're chronic or terminal. Um, and I have a, I, I've never counted exactly, but I have a pretty good success rate in helping people who've been sent home to die to fully recover their health And I'm not even a doctor.
0: Danny, how do we find out more? Get a copy of your book, follow you online, continue to learn from you?
1: Uh, My home base is danny-carol.com. That's where you'll find uh, all of my other books. There'll be 500 books that you can read ultimately, and they'll all be on my website to read for free. Um, my my uh, flagship book, Terminal Cancer is a Misdiagnosis, is currently available on Amazon in audio, um, Kindle, uh, paperback, and hardback, and you can get that globally.
0: Fantastic. Danny, thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff. Really interesting message, and uh, I can't wait to read it. This is one I will have to read.
1: <laughs> it is absolutely mind-blowing. It's very, very fascinating, Jim. Give it a try. I will. Thank you so much for being with us, Danny. Absolute pleasure, Jim. Thank you for hosting me. We are out
0: of time, but you know what? We're back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Go make a million dollars. Read the books. Take care. Have a great day. Bye now.